The sermon today will be taken from Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. This is the word of God. No one is righteous. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. Their poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Thus says the Lord. Friends, we're continuing through the series uh, through the book of Romans. And uh, if you're near to CCC, if perhaps you've just started joining us online for the past few months, you're probably hearing us and you're thinking to yourself, man, you know, CCC, they, they really love talking about sin. <laughs> Every week, it's all about how sinful we are. It's about how bad we are. A- and the reason as to why that is, is because for the past two chapters in the book of Romans, in, in our series, that's really all Paul has been talking about. He's been, he's been talking about sin. And because we're trying to preach through the book in order, beginning to end, that's what we're going to be talking about too. Now, if you stick through uh, our series in the book of Romans, you'll find that next week, when we get to chapter 3, verse 21, Paul will finally talk about the gospel, right? Finally talk about the good news. So, so it's coming. But for this week, as we're still on chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, guess what topic Paul talks about again? Yes, sin. Now, it's understandable that if some may be asking, why is Paul spilling so much ink over this topic? On this issue, on sin, is it just because he's a bitter old man, you know, who kind of sees the world in glass half empty lenses? Well, no, that's not the reason why. So why is it then? Does he do this? Well, if you were with us earlier in in the service, um, then you would have joined us in singing along one of the Christian classic hymns that the church has loved throughout the centuries called Amazing Grace, right? Why is it that Christians over the centuries, and why do we love this hymn and love this song so much? Because it talks about how amazing grace is and how, how sweet grace is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? But have we ever asked ourselves as to why John Newton, the author of this hymn, found grace to be so amazing and so sweet? Well, he tells us the reason on the very next line. He says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Newton was able to taste the sweetness of grace. Why? Because he understood just how wretched of a sinner he was. If you know the story of John Newton, He was a slave trader um, in the late 1700s, and he received Christ in one of his trips um, because there was a storm, and and, and the story uh, might be too long for me to share. But for him, the grace of Christ on the cross was truly amazing because he realized that he truly was a wretch. There's nothing about him that was inclined 
to God. There's nothing about him that would make God inclined to love him. Grace for John Newton was so amazing, it changed his whole life. It, it, it made him change his occupation, and he eventually, with William Wilberforce, uh, helped abolish slavery uh, in, in England in 1807. But I think for most people, grace doesn't feel quite amazing as it did for John Newton. Why? Because most people don't feel like they're that bad. So if God gives them grace, then it's not really amazing. It's more kind of expected. Especially for the religious people, like the Jews that Paul was talking about here, or talking toward here in this letter. If, if you're listening to this today, and, and you've been a Christian for a while, or perhaps you grew up in a religious or in a moral household, you're, you're a moral religious person, you probably know what I mean. To not find God's grace to be amazing and sweet, but rather just kind of expected and pleasant. That's why Paul spills so much ink over this topic, because he wants us to never lose sight of just how bitter our sin is so that our souls may never grow dull to the sweetness of God's grace. Okay, so stick with me uh, with Paul as he talks about sin again here one more time before he moves on to the gospel next week. Let's get to it. Three things that I want to point out from a passage today about sin. Point one, it's elusive nature. Point two, it's holistic harm. Point three, it's true mirror. It's elusive nature, it's holistic harm, and it's true mirror. Okay, let's start with point one. It's elusive nature. For this point, all that I want to talk about is one phrase that you find in verse 9. Okay, so Paul here again in verse 9 explains how Jews and Greeks, in other words, everyone, are, are sinners. And there's nothing terribly new here, right? He said that already a few times. But there is this one phrase. Phrase, I think, in verse 9 that deserves more of our attention, and it's how Paul describes all of us as sinners in verse 9. See, when we talk about sin, when we think about sin, for most of us, sin is an action. Sin is something that we do, sin is something that we commit, and it certainly is an action. It is that, but it's more than just that. Look at the end of verse 9. How does Paul describe sin to be? For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Notice, Paul didn't just say both Jews and Greeks commit sinful acts. He said both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Sin here is painted as hovering over us, as, as being above us. In other words, sin is not just an act that we do, but it's also a power that governs us. A preacher once preached on this passage, and he begun his sermon by asking this, this question. He asked, here's the biggest question about humanity, or at least so he claims. Here's the biggest question about humanity. Why is it that even though we know something is right and good, we often have a hard time doing it, and even when we know something is wrong or bad, we are still drawn to it? Why is that? Why do we have such a hard time doing what we know is right and not doing what we know is wrong? Why is that? And, and many people over the centuries have offered their answers, right? Maybe some would say we just don't have enough willpower. Willpower is the answer, right? If we just have enough willpower, then we'll be able to overcome our sins and our, our evils. But that's not fully convincing, I don't think, because I'm sure we all know many people with a lot of willpower that are still bad people. I mean, almost every dictator and tyrant in the history of the planet have extraordinary willpower. The problem isn't that they're lazy. The problem is that they channel their willpower towards things that aren't good. Well, okay, if, 
if willpower isn't the answer, then maybe it's education, right? Ed if we're just educated, then we'll get over our evil and our, and our sins and bad habits. And, and, you know, why do we call racist people ignorant? We call them that, right? If someone's racist, we call them ignorant. Don't be so ignorant. And the picture we have of our heads in our heads about racist people are these people who are kind of in the backwoods somewhere. They're uneducated, right? They're uncultured. And we need to educate them. We need to inform them out of their ignorance. That's the solution. Until you look at World War II, and you quickly will find that Germany was one of the most educated, informed, and cultured nations out there back then but yet they're also the hub of racism. And we know this from history. We know this from our own personal experiences. Many educated people are bad, and many uneducated people are very kind and generous and moral. <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily the answer. Okay, if it's not willpower, if it's not education, then maybe some have said it's psychology, right? It's, it's, w if we just have the ability to psychoanalyze ourselves and, and to find out the inner life and glance into our subconscious and understand our deep motivations, why we do the things that we do, then we'll behave better. And I I'm a counselor. <laughs> My wife is a counselor. I know many counselors. And, you know, they are very knowledgeable of how your past affects you. They're very, very knowledgeable of the subconscious. They have a high EQ. They can really pinpoint the reasons and behind the reasons of why you do things and ask them. Just ask them, hey, do you still have a hard time doing what's good? <laughs> have you ever had a hard time saying no to things that are wrong? Still, now, even as a counselor, I think honest ones will say yes. I don't know if that's the solution either. And we don't have to go to these things for an example. Just look at your own life. Look at, think about your own story. You may have once been uneducated, and now you find yourself to be much more educated. You have once found yourself to have low... Uh, EQ, and you weren't self-aware, and now you find yourself to be much more self-aware. You have might once found yourself to be lazy, and now you're much more hardworking. You might have once been an atheist, and now you're a religious person. You know, maybe you're even a Bible study leader in your church or an elder at your church. Do you find it natural to consistently do what's right now? And do you find it natural to not crave the things that are wrong? Why is that? Why is that? The Bible says because sin transcends beyond our willpower, beyond the level of our education, beyond our EQ. It's a master. It's a governing force above us. A good biblical picture of this concept of being under sin is actually, I think, found in the book of Exodus. You read the book of Exodus, and you see the Israelites here under the mastery, under the slavery of Egypt. Okay, and, and here's what's really weird. If, if you read the story, right, they're traveling outside, of, outside Egypt toward the Promised Land. You'll see that they've always wanted to leave Egypt. There's no question about that. But once they left, they kept wanting to go back. It's, it's weird. You remember this famous story in Exodus chapter 32 when, when uh, Israelites left Egypt and they, in chapter 32 in Exodus, worshipped a false god that was shaped in an image of a golden calf or, or a baby cow. Do you know which country worshipped cows? It was Egypt. You see, they, they want to leave it behind, but they also miss it. They hate it, but also love it. And you see this over and over again as, as they walked away from Egypt unto the promised land. It's always this back and forth. It's always this duality, right? Exodus chapter 12, they're praising God for freeing them out of Egypt. And then Exodus chapter 14, they're saying, let us go back and serve the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 21 and 31, they're worshiping God for freeing them out of Egypt. And then Exodus chapter 32, they're worshiping a false god that they worship back in Egypt. It's like, it's like they're addicts. They both hate and love Egypt. They both want to escape it, but keep, 
getting drawn back to it. They're both disgusted by it, but also they deeply adore it and long for it. This is the picture of sin's power above us. And look, it's not like our desire to leave it behind is insincere or, or fake or weak. No, no. I know people who have profusely wept because they sincerely, truly, deeply, intensely are remorseful and hate their sin. And not just the consequences of their sin, but their actual sin itself. I've been there. I've wept for sins that I am ashamed of and, and truly hate and am disgusted about. But do you not find it true that no matter how much you hate it, no matter how much you want to run from it, there is something in us that keeps getting drawn back. There's something in us that keeps whispering, you need me, you love me, you want me, and we just crave it. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because sin is not just something we do, but it is also something we're under. And just in case the Jews in Paul's day didn't see that, just in case we don't see that, Paul moves on to the next section of the passage, and he uses the Old Testament to make his point, which leads us to our second point, sin's holistic harm. Okay, Paul continues in uh, verse 10 to 18 here in our passage, quoting a bunch of Old Testament passages and to make his point, right? But why would he do that? Well, one is to show that this really depressing claim he just made about sin wasn't just something that's coming out of a bitter old man, right? This is something that the Old Testament, the scriptures also says. That's why in verse 10a, Paul says, as it is written, referring back to the Old Testament. And then in verse 10b to 18, Paul starts this long quote from the Old Testament. And, and here's what's important. This isn't a quote just from one passage in the Old Testament. This is actually a collection of different verses from different passages in the Old Testament that Paul just kind of meshes together in, in this one long quote. You know, some are taken from Psalm chapter 10, some are taken from Psalm chapter 14, 53, 104, some from Proverbs, some from the book of Isaiah. Just a collection of verses. But he chose these particular verses intentionally, that there's a purpose behind it. Paul is trying to further his case in saying, hey, in case you aren't convinced yet of just how powerful sin is over you, let me just point out four ways in how it's mastered you from the Old Testament, okay? One, it's clouded your understanding. Two, it's distorted your worship. Three, it's killed your soul. And four, it ruins your communities, okay? Don't worry about getting that now. It'll be on your screens. But these are the four sub points under our second point. Here's how sin uh, has power over us. This is how we can know. First, it clouds our understanding. Look at verse 10b to 11. None is righteous, uh, Paul here quotes from Psalm chapter uh, 14, uh, which is what we read earlier in our, in our uh, uh, confession of sin. None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. Okay, that's what I want to focus on. Paul here is wanting to point out that our craving for sin is like any addiction. It messes up our understandings. It causes us, in other words, to be selective thinkers. Okay, let's go back to how the Israelites uh, uh, were when they left Egypt. Okay, that story of, of them leaving. If you remember, why is it that they kept wanting to go back? Well, they kept wanting to go back because in the desert, there's very little water and food. There's not much resources. Remember, that's one of the biggest reasons why, why they wanted to go back. Let me just read Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 5. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. 
We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. <laughs> and the readers are reading this and they're thinking, wait a second, you're telling me that when you think of Egypt, that's what you remember? The fish? <laughs> like just, you know, take a second, think about how Egypt was for you. Think about how life was in Egypt. You know, the slavery, the abuse, the labor, the oppression, the suffering, the fact that they drowned your male new babies. <laughs> and you're saying, but the cucumber was free. The garlic was great. And we hear that and we're just bewildered. You know, what are you, did you forget? But let me hit the brakes for us right there and ask us when we fall back into our Egypts, do we not also often justify it in our minds? As if it's okay to do, you know, oh, just one last visit to the site. You know, it's not hurting anybody. Did you forget? Did you forget how enslaved you were once to it? Did you forget how much hiding and sneaking around you had to do? Did you forget how fake you felt knowing that the person you present to the world is not the person you are behind closed doors? Did you forget all that? Oh, you know, just one more last uh, deal under the table. Just, just one more, I've done well for so long. One last time, we really need this client. It's okay. Did you forget? how tiring it was to cover up that lie with more lies and with more lies and with more lies. Do you remember how tiring that was? Do you forget the constant anxiety that you felt about getting caught? Did you forget about the elephant you felt on your chest because of the lack of integrity that you had? You forget that? Oh, I'm just going to skip this one really uncomfortable part uh, in the sermon, you know. Uh, it's not like I'm addicted to people liking my sermons or anything. I just really want to make God's word more accessible to the masses, right? More appealing to people. D did you forget how exhausting it is to do ministry for likes? I guess I'm talking more to myself here. Did you forget how much it fed into your insecurities? Did you forget how it led you down this path of competitiveness with other churches and other ministries? Did you forget that part? In order to fall back into the sins that we've been trying to leave behind, there has, has to be some kind of mental gymnastics. There has to be some kind of picking and choosing selectively in our understanding that will then allow us to forget why we left in the first place. Why? Because that's how addiction works. It clouds our judgment. It twists our memories. We're always going to justify it. But not only does the power of sin cloud our understanding, it also distorts our worship. Let's continue in verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks God. And, and we hear that. I mean, what do you mean, Paul? There's a lot of people that seek God. I know a lot of religious people out there that, that seek God all the time. Well, is it God, though, that we're seeking? I mean, I've, I've found usually that there are many reasons of why people seek God, but God is rarely actually one of those reasons. What I mean, for example, there are really selfish reasons of why somebody seeks God. And for example, that's to get more money right? To get better careers. That's not seeking God for God. That's seeking God for self-interest. But then, you know, there's more understandable reasons of why people seek God. For example, for a better health. Now, seeking God to get better health is perhaps less crass than seeking God for just money, you know? It, and it really is, I think. But see, this person still really isn't seeking God for God. 
And then there are even better reasons yet of why some people might seek God. For example, they want to have better character. They want to grow as a person. They want to just become a, a better person. And that's a noble reason, more noble, some would argue, than just seeking God for money or longevity of life. But the thing is that that's still not seeking God, just simply for God. And then there are really, 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 really good reasons of why people might seek God, such as ministry growth, or you want to be more equipped uh, so that you can lead people to Christ. And those are great reasons, of course, of why you would want to seek God, much better reasons than money and career and longevity of life and personal development. I'm not saying these things are bad. Money is fine. Health is great. Personal development and ministry growth are virtuous things. All I'm saying is that it just seems really rare to find someone who's seeking God just simply for God. Not for personal growth. Not for marital improvement. Not for financial growth. Not for personal health. Not for ministry growth. As good and great and right those things are to want. I, I just find it rare to find someone who's seeking God, full stop, just to simply be immersed in his fellowship for the sake of enjoying his eternal presence, full stop. To be honest, I'm not sure if, if I can say that I've ever experienced that kind of unadulterated, perfectly pure moment of seeking God just for God, you know, without any other hidden desires or agendas, try doing it. My guess is that you'll find it just as hard to do as me. Sin clouds our understanding, it distorts our worship, and three, it kills our souls. Look at verses 13 to 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I want us to notice here that the quote Paul is doing here is that he's wanting to point out there's a progression of sin. It comes from the inside out. It starts from the throat, and then it goes to the tongue, and then it goes to the lips, and then it comes out of the mouth. Here's, here's the point. The problem as to why we have deceitful tongues and venomous lips and a bitter mouth is because, Paul is trying to point out, there's a grave, there's a tombstone in here. It's because death is in here. That's why we have such a hard time being life-giving with our speech. Try it. Try committing to not saying anything self-promoting in any way. Try commit to not say anything self-elevating in any way. Try to delete any kind of defensiveness in your tone of voice when someone rightfully calls you out for your mistakes. Try to never again gossip about anyone in any way. Try to commit to always have your words be for the purpose of building others up instead of tearing them down. Give it a go. <laughs> How long do you think you'll last? How many days? Hours? Why is it so much easier for us to speak words of death rather than words of life? It's because, the Bible says, that's what's in here. If what's in here wasn't bad, then why is it bad comes out so easily all the time? The power of sin clouds our understanding, the Bible claims. The power of sin distorts our worship, it kills our soul, and lastly, it ruins our communities, which is pretty self-explanatory here in verses 15 to 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Look, Paul is saying here, whether you come from an educated background or not, whether you come from a technologically advanced culture or not, whether you come from a religious household or not, whether you 
you're white or you're black or you're Asian or you're Jewish or you're Greek, whether you're emotionally aware or not, whether you come from a rural village or you live in an urban, urban megapolitan, just, you know, give it a go. Try it. Try to not selectively think and justify your wrongdoing. Try. Try to purely seek God simply for God without any other hidden motives. Try to be kind, gentle, holy, life-giving, and not self-promoting with your speech. And try to prioritize others at your expense instead of the other way around. And let's see how natural those things are to you. And, and if, if we don't see that, Paul, Paul ends his argument here by saying that you're not looking at the right mirror. Okay, let's move on to our th third and last point. Sin's true mirror. You know, the last person, I think we would say, that you want to make as judge to determine one's level of addiction is the addict himself, right? If you go to an alcoholic and you ask them, hey, just, just wondering your thoughts, you think, you know, you drink too much? And if they say, uh, no, not, not really. I, I think I drink a good amount. What would you say then? Oh, okay, you know, as long as you don't think that you drink too much, then I guess we're all good. Next round's on me. You know, you would never say that. Why? Because the addict's own standard is not a reliable standard upon his own addiction. Same, same with sin. If you read the Bible, it's interesting. No one, or almost no one in the Bible, would admit they're a sinner while they're sinning. Remember how uh, Nathan in the Old Testament, how he rebuked David for killing Uriah and stealing his wife Bathsheba. Remember what Nathan did? Nathan told a story to David about a shepherd who killed another shepherd to steal the shepherd's sheep. And when David heard the story, he got so angry at the shepherd and he said, how could the shepherd do that? You know, punish the shepherd right away. And Nathan said, that's what you did, David, with Uriah. And David goes, Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we're thinking, what do you mean, oh, yeah? Like, he had to spell it out for you? <laughs> you didn't catch his point, like, mid-story? <laughs> what do you mean, oh, yeah? No one, no one knows they're sinning when they're sinning. Our personal feelings about our sin is not a reliable judge of just how sinful we are. Of course we don't feel sinful. We're the addicts. There's always going to be justification. There's always going to be reasons behind it. There's always going to be excuse for it. There, there's always going to be, uh, uh, it's always going to sound really, really good to us and justifiable to us, which is why Paul said, don't look into your own judgment for this. Look into God's law. That's the mirror in verses 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, to be specific, the point here isn't, you know, here's the law. Which ones have you kept? Oh, you broke seven out of 10? Okay, well then now you know how sinful you are. Now, now you have knowledge of, of sin. That is a legitimate and biblical way of, of using the Bible to lead people to understanding their sins. But Paul's angle here is a bit different. He's, he's more saying, here's the law, try and keep it, and take notice of how much energy and power and mindfulness and self-talk and endurance and, and grit it takes for you to keep them. Take notice of that. You notice it? 
See, now you have knowledge of your sin. First command, worship God alone. Try it. Do it. Seek God, not for self-interest, not for any other hidden agenda, not, for, not even for a ticket to heaven. Seek God just for God, purely for the delight of his eternal presence. And notice how hard it is to do that. Commandment number eight, don't steal. In other words, don't disadvantage others for your own good. Rather, always prioritize others over yourself. Try doing that. Notice how much energy it takes to do that. Commandment number 10, don't covet. Don't be jealous of your neighbor, right? In other words, always rejoice for other people when they succeed. Give that a go. <laughs> you know, next time your coworker gets promoted instead of you, rejoice. Throw them a party. Pray for them. And then thank God that he, in his sovereign wisdom, has found it right and good to distribute more earthly resources to him than to you. And then end that prayer by singing, whatever my God ordains is right. <laughs> Give that a go. See how natural that felt? It doesn't. The fact that I have to try really, really hard to do something tells me I'm not inclined toward it. I don't have to try hard to eat chocolate cake because I'm naturally inclined to it. I do have to try really hard, however, really hard to obey God's will and commandments because I'm not inclined to it. I'm not inclined to what is right and true and good and beautiful. Okay. I realize that at some point this can feel manipulative to you. Especially if you don't know me, I'm just some crazy TV evangelist that's trying to make you feel bad about yourself, okay? Cutting down all your arguments, backing you up into a corner, you know, shutting your mouths from other comebacks that you might have. So I'll stop because it's not my job, nor is it within my capability to convince you of the bitterness of our sin. But I must say this. Verse 19 says, Paul says, until our mouths are shut, until we are brought to a place where we have no more answers back to God, until we have no more excuses for our mistakes, until we have no more justifications, until we have been emptied of any notion of self-righteousness, until that happens, grace will never be amazing to you. And it will always be expected. It'll never taste sweet to you but forever bland. John Gerstner, a theologian, who is a seminary professor at Knox Theological Seminary, he, he once commented on verse 19 here of chapter 3 of Romans, and he said, Nothing stands between you and God but your good works. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. But most people don't have it. All you need is need. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. That's why more people are surprised by God's judgment than they are by God's mercy. Why are we more surprised of his judgment than of his mercy? Because we do not yet possess nothing. We have not been rid of self-righteousness. Only when you realize that you do not in any way seek God, only then will the fact that he sought you be amazing and sweet to you. When God died for you on that cross, he didn't die for a bad servant. He died for his enemy. And until you realize that, 
you will never be surprised by his grace. And the cross might be delightful for you, but never shocking. The cross might be pleasant news, but never amazing news. It might be a nice event, but not a life-changing, soul-altering one. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. I pray that God would send his spirit to empty us today and cause us to taste the bitterness of our sin so that we might be blown away by the sweetness of his cross. Let's pray. Father, send your spirit to cause us to taste the bitterness of our sin so that we may find the work of your son to be amazing and sweet. And with John Newton alongside the church universal, sing with praises aloud, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, protect us from a kind of preaching that flatters our ears, from the kind of preaching that exalts mankind. This will only cause us to see grace as expected, but rather keep your cross in our hearts as forever amazing, bewildering, shocking, and life-changingly sweet, even if by doing so you must empty us of ourselves. In his name, and in his name alone, we pray. Amen.